from Matthew chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things that testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you want, you can turn to Psalm 91. We'll begin begin there with some prayer. O Lord, you dwell... In the shelter of the Most High. Rest in the shadows of the Almighty. I will say to you, Lord, you are our refuge and you are our fortress, our God. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds and affections that trust in you. Dear God, we we cannot save ourselves, but it is you who will save us from the fowler's snare, God, and from the deadly pestilence, God, and you will cover us with the feathers under your wing, and we will find refuge in you and you alone, God, and your faithfulness will be our shield, God, and I pray that as we again wrestle with your text this morning, that we would turn to you to find shelter, God. That we would not try to deliver ourselves, but that we would find ourselves resting in your work and resting in the finished work of your Son. God, could you bring us eyes to behold the beauty of your Son. Amen. Friends, we do live in an amazing, an amazing country. Just think about it. We are two-time World War champions, right? Back-to-back 
champions. The Krauts, they can't say that, those Germans. No, but Americans, we can, two times. Back-to-back World War champions. The, we have economic prosperity beyond measure, right? Even, even the, the most destitute among us are men of envy for the billion-plus that are living on less than a dollar a day. And as we look forward, it's quite apparent that it's becoming less and less uncertain what will happen. No one knows. God does as we look forward. But as we look past and we see this egregious sin of our country, that for 250 years, countless Africans were held as slaves. Husbands were separated from their wives and sons and daughters were pulled away from the arms of their mothers and auctioned off to the highest bidder. And these were the atrocities of our brothers and sisters in the faith. And the atrocities that happened during these times against our brothers and sisters in the faith they cannot be understated. And in the midst of this slavery, it took someone outside of them, did it not? To bring them freedom. And Lincoln, he, he references this, that this atoning sacrifice will come when he, he says in his second inaugural address, which is astounding and fascinating, He says that perhaps the war will continue until, he says, until every drop of blood drawn with the whip will be paid for by the blood of another drawn by the sword. And so this freedom from oppression, this freedom not only from oppression, but towards self-determination, it comes from someone outside of them. Even men from the north like my great-great-grandfather, shed their blood and gave of themselves to grant others freedom. Freedom that they could not have without the death of others. This parallel is what we see in our text this morning. See, here in in our text, we have this freedom that is granted by the punishment of another. You have Barabbas, who is guilty. He is dead in his sin. He is dead because of his rebellion against the king. A political king. And he is set free. Right? Barabbas is set free, but and he is guilty. Yet you have Christ, who is the innocent one, the pure one. He is guiltless, but yet he is the one who endures the wrath of God. He is the one sent away. He is the one who is condemned. So our theme that I want you to take home and that I want you to wrestle with this week is I want you to see, my brothers and sisters, I want you to see that your freedom is in Christ. Christ has given you freedom and Christ and Christ alone can grant you your freedom. So how do we get there? Well, 11 through 14, you see that Christ is the King. If he's not, it's, it's of little use that he dies, quite frankly. 
Christ is the King, so He and He alone can give you this freedom. That's verses 11 through 14. And then we go down a little bit, verses 15 to 23. And you can see that as King, He has purchased your freedom. So then, well, how do we respond? Well, we see what not to do when we look at verses 24 through 26. So what should we do? Well, you receive Christ. So, friends, your freedom, your freedom is in Christ. You see that He is the King. And because of that, He and He alone can purchase your freedom. Well, then how do you respond? You receive Christ. You give your life to Christ. Everything that you have, you give it to Christ who has given you all that you have. Right? So just to recap again before we move forward, we see that this glorious night, Thursday night, has become has begun with seeing Christ as the deliverer. They're gathered together again, reclining at the table, and the celebration of, of God's deliverance of them, and they're looking back and they're looking back and looking back at what has gone God has done to redeem them from oppression. And as they look back, they're looking forward and and pleading with God that He would release them from the oppression, from their oppressors, the Romans. Right? But you see that they're, they were looking to the wrong realm to understand their oppression. Their oppression wasn't physical, it was spiritual. Their oppression wasn't someone outside of them. No, it was within so it wasn't the, the Egyptians that they looked back to. It wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the, or the, the Medo-Persian Empire or the Greeks or the Seleucid Empire. No, the Romans. No, it wasn't all of these guys. No, it was the sin within them that was oppressing them. See, a taskmaster is grueling, but a taskmaster cannot hate, bring you to hate your brother and sister. A taskmaster cannot bring you to the point when you cursed your own mother and father who brought you into the world. But sin, sin can't. And as they're gathered around this table on this Thursday evening, they are looking, much like you, for deliverance. Free us, God. Free us from the Romans, God. Free me. Free me from this dead-end job. Free me from this life of monotony. When I know I only have 27 and a half more years until I retire from other male. Free me, God, from this life of monotony. Dear God, free me and give me this best life now. But Christ makes it clear what the purpose of this is in the Lord's, Lord's Supper when he says, when he's holding up the cup and he, he tells them, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which has been poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. Not for the freedom of oppression from political rulers, no, but from the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so again, it's not political, it's spiritual, it's not external, it's internal. And at the conclusion of this, they go outside in the, into the Garden of Gethsemane. They go outside of the Eastern Wall and cross over the bridge that goes over the Kidron Valley and then they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the moments of agony. His disciples, I will never leave you, Lord. Leave him. First chance they get. And that vacuum of camaraderie is filled with Roman troops. 
And they come around him and they bring him to, as Adam was preaching on, they bring him to Annas' house first. Annas, is, he was the high priest prior to this. He was a high priest for five to five, six, seven years maybe. And he had five of his sons were the high priest. One of his son-in-laws, Caiaphas, was now the high priest. And one of his grandchildren, grandsons, was the high priest as well. So you want to know who's calling the shots in the religious realm? It's Annas. Why do they go to Annas' house first? He's the one calling the shots. He gives the green light. They go from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house. And this, this mockery of a trial begins. And it tears asunder every Jewish law and, and Jewish order that they have before them. The elder statesman, the high priest, he's supposed to speak last. And what does Caiaphas do? He renders his, his robe open and he declares, First, we've seen this blasphemy. What more do we need to see? He's guilty. It wasn't a, a rather uh, a regular meeting of the Sanhedrin. It was just this ad hoc gathering that they were supposed to have. And then on top of that, they didn't even have the authority to pronounce a capital crime, a capital punishment, did they? So it's like you, like me, I'm a terrible driver, going to the traffic court, and you're going to pay your fine and be on your way. And he puts on his white wig and then this black thing on top of him and you start wondering what's going on and you're in traffic court and, and he begins to pronounce a death sentence over you. And you go, no, you, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do this here. Well, that's just what they did. And then they pass him on, on to Pilate. But before doing that, what do they do? Well, they can't help themselves. They, they spit in his face. They punch him in the face. They slap him in the face. They mock him, and they bring him to Herod's beautiful palace, which would have been in the northwest part of town, which is where Pilate would have been staying while he was staying in Jerusalem, traveling through. And now this Thursday evening, which began with so much hope, is now turned to darkness as the sun comes up. And hope is gone as we come into Friday morning. We begin our text here in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And you you notice here, the first thing to notice is the change in charges. Caiaphas, he rips his robe open, he says he's guilty of blasphemy. The Romans, they don't care. So then they change the charge, and you see what's before him. They're asking, are you the king of the Jews? So the, the Romans, they obviously can't have someone, another political uprising, challenging the political authority of Rome. So we asked him, are you the, the king of the Jews? And, and Pilate, he has no idea, friends. He has no idea what, what, he's tip, what he's tipping his toe into. This vast ocean. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, yes, certainly. But not only. Who is the one through whom all things were created? Well, it's it's Christ. 
Right? He is is the king, but he is far much more than a custodian of of a privileged position. No. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the one sustaining creation. You guys, right now, sustaining your life. For in Him, Paul writes, for He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the king. Go to the end. You want to see if he's the king. Revelation 17, John writes, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. So he is the eternal king of the eternal kingdom. And he is ruling with all power, and he is ruling with all love and with all justice. And he is guaranteeing victory. For his people. For he must reign, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Isaac Watts sums it up best. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successive journey run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till sun shall rise and set no more. Jesus. This is the king. But he's not only the the king of the Jews, my friend. No. He is the one who should be ruling and reigning in your heart, should he not? Pilate here. But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. You see in verse 14. So that the governor, this pagan governor, he was greatly amazed. So we see here, Pilate is greatly amazed in us. What do we do? You hear about it and you shrug it off. Big deal. Oh, he's king. Yep. We've talked about it over and over and over. Dozens of times throughout Matthew about the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Why? Because you keep shrugging it off. It's not only the the tenth time that you shrug it off, but no, the first time it got... Guys, let Christ be the King reigning in your hearts and let Him be the King reigning in your homes. Let Him reign in all that you do, my friends. So, what's before we move on, what's our great endeavor in this text? We want you to see that your freedom is in Christ. Christ is has given you your freedom. And so as king, he is the only one suited to grant it to you. And in fact, not only has he given it to you, but he's purchased it with his own blood. So let's go back to the text here. Verses 15 through 23. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release uh, for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. 
The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What, What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. You see, the, the setting and the opposition of Christ is growing in their size and their fervency. You begin with some soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then you move to Annas' house and Caiaphas' palace. And a little more people, a little more crowds, a little more fervent. And finally, you have this trial that has grown into a full mob. And they will not be satisfied until they have blood, and they will... They're an impassioned crowd, and they're a large crowd, and they, chances are they don't really know why they're being stirred up with these evil thoughts. But the greater the crowd, the more unstable it is. And for some time, the, the Jewish people had been on verge of rebellion. Always on verge of rebellion. So as, as they, all of the masses gather together for, for the three festivals, this one being the Passover, during the Passover feast, in order to kind of like have a, a valve open just to kind of release some of the pressure of rebellion when all the people are gathered together, they would release a notorious prisoner. So here's Pilate. With this great crowd, in anticipation of this re- uh, prisoner being released, and you see that Pilate's actually a little more sympathetic, isn't he? As you read through it, it seems as though Pilate is a little sympathetic. He's not guiltless. He, he sends a, uh, uh, an innocent man to be killed. But he's a little sympathetic towards Christ. And even his wife has, has been haunted and sends him a message that she's been haunted with this dream. But the followers of Christ, they've, they've scattered. Right? And the, the Jewish leaders, they're in, they're in the people and they're able to sway them and they're able to bring them about the way that they want and they're able to rise them up into a frenzy. And again, he asked them, first he asked them in verse 17, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? And then he asked them again in verse 21, the governor said to them again, which other two do you want me to release for you? And the crowd, growing into a frenzy, cries out for Barabbas. Barabbas. It just means son of a father. We don't know much about Barabbas. He had a father. That's what we know. And then kind of half-mocking, half, half bitter towards the crowd, Pilate asked them, what shall I do with the one who is named Christ? Christ, this, this anointed one, the Christ, the, the Messiah, the one who shall come and take away the sins of the people. And then comes this most depraved cry. And a cry that is in all of our hearts from the time of birth. And they cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him. And it's, it's unthinkable when you realize what's going on in this first century as all the people of the Jewish people of God are gathered together in Jerusalem under the rule of the Romans that they would be crying out, the Jewish people would be crying out to the Romans to crucify someone. And not only someone, but one of their own. 
Let them be crying out to the Romans to crucify another Jew. And not only that, but Christ. Who's lived with them, walked with them, healed them. Has been teaching with them. Serving them. And they will have none of it. They want Him crucified. And here we have this great exchange. Here we have this great exchange. The innocent for the guilty. The guilty one, Barabbas, he is able to go free. But the innocent one, Christ, he is the one condemned. And I trust, I hope that you're beginning to see what is actually happening here. So go with me on a, on a journey, if you will. So we go back to the garden. And here it's beautiful and it's lush and it's God has created man. And out of, out of the, it's, it's so beautiful. Out of the, these waters of judgment up comes life. Just like baptism, the land and the, the, the trees and the plants and we have the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and then it goes along and he creates the animals and the beast of the land and it creates Adam. And out of Adam's side he brings forth Eve. And they are married. And the two flesh become one. And they have one thing they ought not to do, and that is to eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, what's the one thing they do? They eat, right? Not of everything else that it gives them, but just of the one thing that they cannot have. And in enters sin and death and corruption, and they were formerly naked, but they didn't care because they were innocent. But now they knew of their nakedness and they hide from God and God pursues them and He says, where are you? Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? Did you eat something that you shouldn't have eaten? And God provides for them a covering, does He not? God kills an animal. Blood is shed in order to cover their nakedness. In order to provide a covering for their shame and their guilt. They had fig leaves, but that wasn't sufficient because blood was not shed. You needed the shedding of the blood for the atonement of sin. So have that in mind and carry forward a little bit and go to the, the tabernacle and the temple. Again, you see this Wonderful picture of you bring a ram, a goat, or a lamb, or a bull in, and you would place your hands upon it. This picture of the transfer of guilt. The guilty one would come in with the innocent one. And the guilty one would leave. Because he would transfer the guilt from the guilty to the innocent, and the innocent would be slain. You see this. That's the main theme going on throughout the temple. So you see it in Exodus 29, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 3, Leviticus 4. It's very clear what's happening. Leviticus 16 and 17, they even, the priest will lay his hands on it and pronounce and confess the sins of the people. That's on the scapegoat that goes and carries the sins away as far as the east is to the west, away from the people. So go, go to, let's go to Leviticus 1. Just to read it. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf. 
on His behalf to make atonement for Him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then the sons, Aaron's sons, the priests shall bring the blood and the sprinkle it on the altar and all sides of the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And then on the day of atonement, they go into the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, and they splatter the blood there as well. So you see this transfer of guilt from the, the guilty to the innocent. And the innocent one is killed and the guilty one then goes free. But we know that it is necessary for blood to be shed. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, but we also know that the blood of goats and bulls, it's not enough. If it was, they wouldn't have to do it over and over and over and over and over. We'd still be doing it. But no, there must be another. There must be one who can Make the sacrifice once and for all. There must be one who cannot go into the earthly temple with his sacrifice and his offering, but one who can go into the heavenly temple with his sacrifice and with his offering and enter Christ into our story. So this is not just an interesting story about Jesus and Barabbas, my friend. No, this is a story about you and God. That's what's happening here. And the authors are really intentional in, in including this. All four gospel authors include this. Matthew doesn't take time to include Jesus going to Herod, which would have happened between verses in 14 and 15. It doesn't take time to include that, but they do include Barabbas. Why is this so critical? Why does each of the gospel authors not leave this out when there's so limited space and so much to talk about? Why? It gives you the framework. It gives you the interpretive framework in which we can understand, again, a physical picture of an invisible reality, the interpretive framework in which we can understand what's going on in the crucifixion. So it's not just someone dying on a cross, but no, it's the guilty being, being set free and the innocent being slain. So it's through this lens that we understand what is happening on the cross. So it isn't just, again, about Barabbas and Jesus, an interesting story. But no, this is about you and your standing before God. That you are Barabbas. You are guilty of your sin. You are guilty of your rebellion, not just against some political ruler. No, but you are guilty against the King of all kings and the Lord of, against, Lord of all lords, my friend. And now because of this, you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember, as Paul wrote, all have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as Connor was praying through this morning in Psalm 14, that is referenced in Romans 3, that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All, you, me. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Anyone? Anyone? No. No, not one. And in this state, you can do nothing. African slaves, they could not free themselves. 
They needed someone outside of them to come and free them. Barabbas, he did not free himself. He needed someone outside of him to come and free him. You and your sin cannot free yourself. Try as you may. Go ahead. Stop sinning. Give it a shot. You didn't make it very long, did you? You cannot free yourself from this sin. But there is one. There is one who who can. There is one who is innocent and one who is pure. And in the place of the guilty, the innocent will die. As Paul writes, behold our Christ. And Paul writes, whom God put forth as a propitiation. Propitiation, just a fancy Christian word. It means sin offering. So, propitiation. Remember, sin offering, the laying on of hands. It means sin offering or covering. Think of Genesis. Who is the propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So He's the propitiation, the sin offering or the covering for our sin. And Paul writes in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how? How has He redeemed us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So it's not as though He just set us free. But no, the the wrath of God, the justice of God must be satisfied. So He takes the curse upon Himself. But it doesn't end there. This great exchange, it doesn't end right there. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Okay, we've covered that. So that in Him we might become, we might have, the righteousness of God. So in this great exchange, it's not as though Christ just dies. But no, He actually takes our sin. He takes our condemnation. But in that, we get His righteousness. So that, Paul writes, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So then you have the, the culmination of all of this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. My friends, your freedom is in Christ. You're free. You're free to be a slave. You're free to be a slave of Christ who has bought you and purchased you. We see, my friends, that Christ, He is the King. He is the only one that can set us free. Because of this, He has purchased our freedom. What a glorious truth for the church of God to to gather around. We're rejoicing how the, the church around the world has been worshiping. Continually, especially today, it doesn't begin with us at 10.30. This glorious truth that has bound the saints together, men and women have shed their blood. Children have left their mothers and fathers to go around the world to proclaim this glorious truth, my friend. Do not let this grow cold in your hearts. Do not let this grow cold in your hearts. We we see our own depravity, my friends. I pray 
that you would have a sober realization of your depravity, of your state before God, of how desperately wicked you are. Once you have that, and you see that you've been set free from that through the sacrifice of Christ, that this, the judgment of God and the justice of God will be satisfied in His own Son. This glorious message is not redundant. It is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that we behold as the saints of God. And we delight in it. What do you think we're going to be doing throughout eternity? Go to Revelation 5. They're delighting in the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy. That is our delight and that is our reward. So Christ is the King and and He's purchased our freedom. And well, what are we to do? Let's finish it out here in verses 24 through 26. So then, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. He was gaining nothing, but rather the, the converse was happening. He was, a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, unprompted, all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he, He released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, He delivered Him to be crucified. And this mockery of a trial that began in Annas' house, to Caiaphas' palace, to to Pilate, to Herod, and now to Pilate is coming to a conclusion. And there's no way, there's no way a jury would convict someone When the judge presiding over it declares, this man is entirely innocent. There's no way the the people would say, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And it's interesting, Deuteronomy 26, what are the elders to do when there's a murder of an innocent man? And they know it's not of themselves or anyone in their town. What do they do? They wash their hands of the whole thing. And what is Pilate doing before them? He's washing his hands saying, I know you are murdering him. I am innocent. They don't get it. They don't get it. And he dismisses them with the same words with which they dismiss Judas. Go see to it yourselves. And what do they do? Comes out this next cry just as depraved as depraved as the one prior when they're crying out crucify him crucify him they say let his blood let his blood be on us and on our children do you know what happens little do they know how word how true those words would be less than 30 years later their very sons would be crucified on that spot by the romans that same exact spot. Shortly thereafter, all of the hills surrounding Jerusalem and all of the valleys, there are so many, will be littered with their sons dying on crosses. Let this be a warning to you, my friends. Let this be a warning to you. Do not reject the King of all kings, this glorious and beautiful Christ who has come to take your sin away. 
there you sit, declaring in your own hearts, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. You reject him the same way they rejected him in the first century. And in our guilty and in our, our helpless state, my friends, we are just like Barabbas. We are in a position to do nothing but receive Christ, my friends. Receive Him. I'm pleading with you. Turn from your sin and receive Christ. Do not let this moment pass. And in your guilt, and in your shame, turn to Him, my friends. Turn to Him. Turn to Christ who has given you freedom. And pray that you might be made alive together with Him. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, I pray that our hearts would not be cold that they would not be hard, that we would not see our own sin before us. God, I pray that we would no longer be crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him, as we walk apart from Your Son. And I pray that we would behold the beauty of Christ, God. And that we would see our freedom is not an expression of something we have brought upon ourselves, but no, it has been brought to us, by You, through Your Son. And He has taken our guilt, and He has taken our shame, and He is the innocent Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. God, I pray that we would behold Him in a beautiful light, and that You would stir our affections to receive Him and become alive together with Him. Amen.